I want to begin by asking you a question this morning, and the question is, have you ever thought of yourself as an original creation of God? Have you ever thought of yourself as an original, unique creation of God? I would suggest to you that most people do not. And I think there are a couple of reasons most people do not. Number one, it is because of insecurities, their own insecurities. We, tend, we generally tend to compare ourselves with people around us or to people that we admire, and, and that tends to undermine the uniqueness of God's creation in our own life. So we'll look around and say, well, I, I, I'm nothing original, I'm nothing special, I'm nothing unique, because we compare ourselves. And by the way, the Bible says, they that compare themselves among each other are not wise. And um, there's nothing wrong with role models, by the way. There's nothing wrong with learning from others. And we call them mentors, and mentors are very important. In fact, they're biblical. Elisha had Elijah. Timothy had Paul. John Mark had Barnabas. The apostles had Jesus. So mentors are very good in our life, but we are unique. And a lot of times if we don't understand the uniqueness that God has created us with, we will try to impersonate others. And God doesn't want us to be a duplicate of someone else. When he created us, he created us to be originals. The second reason that we don't often see ourselves as an original is because of misperceptions. We have these misperceptions about ourselves. We tend to see ourselves from our perspective rather than God's perspective. You understand that? In one case, insecurities cause us to compare ourselves, and we'll always come up short if we compare ourselves with other people. And then the other is that we have this misperception. We see ourselves the way we see ourselves instead of the way God sees us. There's a story about a girl who was a daughter of one of the royal families in Europe many years ago, and she had a big, round nose, and it was a distraction, in fact, and it destroyed her beauty in the eyes of a lot of people, and certainly in her own eyes. And uh, she, she grew up with this terrible self-image of herself and thought of herself as, I'm just an ugly person. So her family eventually hired a plastic surgeon to change the contour of her nose, and he did his work, and there came that moment, you know, when they take the bandages off and they, they see how successful the surgery was. And, and so the doctor removed the bandages and he saw that the operation had been a total success. The contours that had caused her to think of herself as ugly were gone. Her nose was different. And when the incisions healed and the redness disappeared, she would be a beautiful young lady. But he held a mirror up for her to see herself. And the, the image that she had of herself was so deeply embedded that when she saw her new self in the mirror, she couldn't see that there had been any change. She still saw herself the way she was prior to the surgery. She broke into tears and she cried out, and this is what she said, Oh, I knew it wouldn't work. The doctor labored with that girl for another six months to try to help her accept the fact that she was indeed di different. And it wasn't until she finally could accept the fact that she really was different that her whole behavior began to change. People tend to act according to what they believe about themselves. So if we're deceived into thinking that we're not what God says we are, then we're going to, to act as if we don't see ourselves as God sees us. In Psalms 139, 14, we are told how we should see ourselves. Listen to this. 
I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What a fantastic passage. That's God's perspective. That's what God thinks about all of us. He sees us. He formed us. And uh, that's how we should see ourselves. It isn't uh, a view of arrogance. It is a view of truth. This is what God says. This is how I've constructed you. The Bible teaches that each of us are a special and unique creation of God, one that he himself intricately, carefully put together, constructed. The fact is, all of us in this place today are originals, and that's on purpose. And if you don't get that, you're going to most likely spend chunks and segments of your life trying to remake yourself into your own image and into the image of what you think you should be. I love what Dr. Warren Wiersbe wrote some years ago. He said, if life is to have meaning for us, if God's will is to be done, all of us then must uh, accept who we are and what we are. Then we must give ourselves back to God and thank Him for the way that He made us. And then listen to this line. What I am is God's gift to me. And what I do with it is my gift back to God. What I am, the way I've been constructed, is actually a gift. God designed me. It is God's gift to me. And what I do with that is my gift back to God. And that's the whole idea behind the working of the body of Christ that we've been talking about for several weeks. And in our text this morning, Paul is addressing, he's addressing the composition of the church and our role in that composition. If you're physically able to stand, uh, I invite you to stand with me this morning, and uh, we're going to pick up reading in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is what Paul says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts yet one body. Lord, thank you for uh, making us originals. And Father, help us to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to understand that our construction is both for our good and for the purposes of the kingdom of God. Would you speak to us now this morning from your word? Father, would you cause our hearts to be receptive? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? And Father, transform us with its truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, Paul is addressing the the church. And in our text, he is specifically talking about the way that God made us as it relates to how we serve him within the church, the body of Christ. And while he's speaking to the Corinthian church, that's who he's talking to, this this church in Corinth, a specific body of localized, congregationalized believers, that's who he's speaking to, the application is for all of us, all believers, 
and our connection to and use in the local body of Christ the church. So let's look at four things this morning that involve your original God-given design and how that design is for the purpose of serving God through the church. Here's the first thing I want you to note from our passage, and I want you to see the configuration of the church. Verses 14, verse 24, which we didn't read, keep your Bibles open. We only read part of the text. We'll refer to the rest of it. But verse 14 says, the body does not consist of one member, but many. He's talking about the configuration. Paul says that the body of Christ is made up of two essential uh, elements, the outward and the inward. Some are very obvious. Some parts are very obvious uh, and very noticeable. Others are less conspicuous but vital nonetheless. In other words, he's using this analogy of a physical body to represent the spiritual body, the church of Christ, and in so doing, he says there are two kinds of parts. There are outward parts, the things that we see in each other when we observe each other, and then there are the inward parts. We can't see them, but he says both are vital. In fact, have you ever noticed that we call the internal organs vital organs? They're vital organs. Why? Because what's on the outside can't function without what's on the inside. And that's Paul's point. That's the configuration of the body. And if you'll notice in verses 22 and following, uh, he talks about a little more about that kind of configuration. Look there, he says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, they seem to be weaker. In other words, they're not as focal. Nobody sees them. He says, so it seems that they're weaker, but he says they're really indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor and, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. What appears less valuable, he's saying, is actually highly prized by God. You may be behind the scenes, a servant behind the scenes. We have a lot of people, as I mentioned last week, while we're sitting in here, there are people behind the scenes that are helping us do ministry, getting the broadcast out. There's a team of people praying for us right now. They're praying right now for this service. There are workers uh, all over, rocking babies, taking care, getting ready for uh, different class venues and all kinds of things like that. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And it garners little outward attention. And your spiritual gift may not be as prominent before men. And I use that term specifically. Your spiritual gifts, your parts, your design may not be as prominent to other men, but they are prominent to God. And God knows what they are, and God sees how you use them. point is very simple. All of us have value and valuable function in the kingdom of God. So don't sell yourself short. If you've struggled with who you are and what God might want to do with you or how God could use you, and don't compare yourself to how God uses somebody else. Don't compare yourself with, with people, of even your own family. Instead, recognize the, the uniqueness with which God has created you and then say, now God, uh, you have planned me this way. You've constructed me this way. And I'm important to you, and I'm important to your work. And I will do what you have created me to do, not try to do what you haven't created me to do. Don't sell yourself short. The body's made up of many different parts. That's why parts are not just parts. You're an original. In my study at the house, I have an exercise bike. And I ride it in the mornings. And by itself, I have to tell you, I hate it. Um, 
I just, I, I don't like riding the exercise bike, and some, but I have to have the exercise. So some years ago, I decided if I'm going to do, you know, it's, it's just hard to ride a bike to nowhere. And, and so some years ago, I decided if I'm going to do this and I need to do this, then I, I'm going to have to occupy my mind. And so I started watching documentaries. I have a, it's in my study, I have a, a, a television there. And so I turn the television on, the bike is focused at the television and I watch documentaries. That may sound even worse to some of you. If you don't like the bike and you don't like documentaries, that may really sound like the, uh, the trip from the pit. But at any rate, I like it and it occupies my mind. And so I go in and, and some, some time ago, one of the documentaries I, I watched was, um, was how we put man on the moon. And this specific uh, 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 episode of this documentary dealt with Grumman Aerospace and their bid to build the first ever lunar module. The lunar module is the one that actually lands on the surface of the moon. And it took them seven years. They designed it, they tweaked it, they created uh, this unusual craft to put man on the moon. But they had a design dilemma. They had a design dilemma. What was their design dilemma? Every single part had to be designed and made specifically, and there was no previous part like the one they had to design. Everything they were creating was brand new. There were no standardized parts. Everything had to be tailor-made because they had nothing before it. They were creating it. Now, listen, when I, I saw that, I thought, that's exactly what God did when he created the church. Each of us were designed uniquely, and, and we were handcrafted by God to fit a, a role in his kingdom work. So God, he, he constructed, he composed the church of great variety and great complexity. Each part, that's you, each part is vital and not optional. And that leads to the second thing I want you to see this morning, and that is I want you to see the operation of the church. That's the configuration of the church. But he speaks of the operation of the church. Verses 15 through 17, he says, A foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong uh, to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. The operation of the church is about understanding the roles and the responsibilities. Now, Ridgecrest is not like the Kiwanis Club. We're not like a, a country club. Uh, we're not like uh, the PTA or any other meeting. Now, they may all be good, but we're not like that. We're not like any other organization, however good it may be. We're just not like that. You see, the church is not an organization. The church is a living organism. The church is a living organism. It has life. And the, the life of the church is the Holy Spirit in it, and the Holy Spirit in me, and the Holy Spirit in those who are Christ's children. You make the body of Christ. It is alive. And the Holy Spirit empowers the parts in the body, and it energizes the body to do the work of God. And like a body, the church is dependent on the operation of each of its body parts, and that is why every person is valuable a valuable part in the body. Now, 
Most people don't consciously think about the operation of the body of Christ. We don't, generally, when you leave here today, you're probably not going to sit around lunch. So let's talk about the operation of the body of Christ. And, and you're not going to walk out and say, how does the body of Christ called Ridgecrest operate? I, I get that. I understand that. There, but there is so much going on around here all the time. As I said, there's so many, so many body parts working and serving. And without those parts in their places, we can't do or fulfill the mission of God. Have you ever watched a duck on a pond? You, well, you've seen a duck on a pond. They just glide across the water, don't they? They, they just glide. They, just so easy. It's kind of like you w- with your floaties when you're in the pool, right? They just glide right across the water. It looks so easy to them. But you know, the truth is, you've got to look under the water, and you see that there are some parts called little, little paddles that God made into that duck. And while the duck is cruising across the top of the water, apparently with no effort, below the surface, he's paddling like crazy. You see, those parts you don't see, but the duck on top doesn't glide if those parts aren't working. And that's the way it is for the church. There's a lot of service going on that isn't seen. It's not above the surface, it's below the surface, and it enables the church to function and thrive. In fact, here are three, here are three facts I, I would give you about uh, the church and its operation. Number one, God has designed you specifically for His body. You are to be an operating part in the body. God's designed you for that. Number two, God has designed the church specifically for His purpose. Today, I'm afraid sometimes we're often misled by some of the things we hear as if the church exists for for us. The church exists for the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God. And seniors, I would tell you something. Uh, Always see the vocation that God leads you to as an opportunity for you to honor Him. You exist for the glory of God. He put you here on this planet for that all of us, to serve Him for the kingdom's sake. And so God has designed the church specifically for His purpose. And I believe, by the way, that He gives each local church a mission that is often somewhat unique for that church. And I believe that He gives that church all the necessary parts to carry out that mission. But here's a third fact I give you, and that is that God has designed the right operation for the church to fulfill its mission. You don't have to second guess the operational plan that God has given. You don't have to say, well, I'm not sure God got it right. I'm not sure God really knows how to do that. He doesn't know churches in South Alabama. Uh, You know, uh, this is a Corinthian church, friend. God's game plan always works wherever his people are. And God has designed the right operation for the church to fulfill his mission. Paul notes in these verses that God has set up these operational guidelines for the body parts. And I would urge you to go and read through that chapter again, the entire chapter in the whole context. But God has designed, he set up some operational guidelines for the body, like this, eyes are designed to see. 
ears are designed to hear. I'm talking about spiritually in the, in the body of Christ. He's designed it that way that spiritual eyes see and spiritual ears hear and, and spiritual hands maneuver and spiritual brains think. That may be a subject for debate, but... And hearts pump and legs support. You get it? They do what they're designed to do. That's Paul's point. God has placed us... Just as he desired, verse 18 says. He's done it. He's put us right where we're supposed to be. He hadn't tried to, you know, it's been fun watching our, our uh, oldest grandson uh, uh, over the last couple of years as he learned his shapes and those sorts of things. And they have these little puzzle things and you got to put the shape. And, you know, he was doing it when he was three days old. Uh, but, oh, that's nothing. Our latest one did it after one day. Uh, but uh, no, seriously, but he would start out and he would try to put a star in a square or uh, a circle in a star. And you know, you want to help him, don't you? you, you wanna, and we, we, we would. We'd finally guide him to the point where eventually he learned he could put them all wherever he needed to put them. The right fit with the right part. And listen, friends. You are a part, and there's a right fit for you. Now, as I told you before, don't go, well, I'll, I don't know where that fit is. I'm going to wait till I find that fit. Don't do that. Start serving God. And guess what? Guess what I've watched through the years? God will move you to the right slot, just like my grandson eventually learned, nope, that doesn't fit there. It goes, but he started, the, he gave it the effort, right? Start serving God. And let God move you into his pre-designed place for your life. Every one of us in the church has a gift that is essential. Oswald Chambers said, there are no such things as prominent service and obscure service. It's all the same with God. All the same. No little people, no little places. The implication of that point, listen, don't miss it, it it's profound. It's profound because every believer then needs to thank God for who they are and their gifts. Every believer needs to thank God because God has so, so orchestrated the operation. And every believer needs to use their gifts with all diligence and fervency. Why? Because time is short. If you live 100 years, that's short in the scheme of eternity, right? Right? What, uh, what, your, your life has been, has been God has given you a, a, a window in Psalm 139. I've referenced this a great deal lately to remind us that the Scripture says that all of the days of our lives were written in His book before there was even one of them. So you have this window, and that window is designed to fit your gifts and your abilities, and it is for the purpose of using your life to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And that's the operation that he's established. But when we get outside of our design, we become rebellious. When we, when we start trying to be what we're not created, we become rebellious. And these verses, by the way, indicate that independence eventually leads to arrogance. Did you notice he said the, the I can't say to the ear, I don't need you. Independence leads to arrogance. One member of the body cannot function apart from the rest of the body. For example, if if we were to say, well, you know what, you have a great hand. In fact, your hand is gifted. It's so gifted that I think we'll just cut it off and we'll send it off on a missionary journey. I mean, that's how gifted. Now, we all know something. 
that'd be ridiculous. Because as gifted as, uh, as the hand may be, it cannot function unless it's connected to the rest of the body. The Bible, by the way, never uses the word saint. Now listen, did you know that? The Bible never uses the word saint. It always uses the word saints, plural. Reckon why God did that. It doesn't say saint. It says saints. Why? Because we are members one of another, Paul says to us. You see, dear friend, if, if my service causes problems for your service or my ministry causes problems for your ministries, either I'm doing something wrong or you're doing something wrong or both of us are doing something wrong. The body is where members uh, uh, come together. Uh, they combine their parts and they work together as one. And when that happens, you're actually, when you, when you try to operate on your own, you're actually destroying yourself. You, the brain can't live outside the body. The, the heart can't live outside. The arms can't live if, if they're not attached. None of the parts can make it if they're not connected to all the other parts. And that leads me to a third thing I want you to note here, and that is the collaboration of the church. Verses 20 and 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The ear cannot say to the eye, and so it goes. Paul next is pointing us to the absolute priority of the body part collaboration. The fact is we desperately need each other to effectively serve God. We desperately need each other to effectively serve God. In Chuck Colson's book, The Body, he writes, many Christians have been infected with the most virulent virus of modern American life. And no, it's not covid it's what sociologist Robert Bella calls radical individualism. Boy, are we seeing that? He says, it's, uh, he, he says but many Christians have been infected with, with this virus of radical individualism. And he goes on to say, they concentrate on personal obedience to Christ as if all that matters is just Jesus and me. But in doing so, they miss the point altogether. For Christianity is not a solitary belief system. Any genuine resurgence of Christianity, as history demonstrates, depends on reawakening and renewal of that which is the essence of our faith, that is, the people of God collectively, the body of Christ, which is made manifest in the world, the church. Did you get what he was saying? Christian individualism will not transform the culture, the world. It will not bring revival in the church. What will bring revival in the church is a unification, a, a unity of and a collaboration of all of our gifts together. In fact, cooperation or collaboration or the lack thereof is a catalyst either for success or for failure. When you find a church, by the way, that is full of disgruntled, unhappy, independent, self-centered, uncooperative people, you will always find a church that is either dying, dead, or is in the process of dying. Why? Because they're not collaborating. They're not functioning uh, in a healthy way. And by the same token, when you find a church that is happy 
and focused and surrendered and humble and unified and cooperative, you're going to find a healthy, living, dynamic family and body of Christ. You remember years ago when the Challenger, the space shuttle, exploded. Uh, following that, I read a number of books about what happened and the, the different uh, technical details of what went on. And they later found out what caused uh, it was the failure of some O-rings on it. But what struck me in that book was a, a statement the authors were talking about. And I think I've shared this with you before, but it talked about there was, there, there's a thing called criticality seven on the shuttle. And that meant that there were 700 parts on that shuttle that if any one of them malfunctioned, 700 parts, and if any one of them malfunctioned, it was a total catastrophe. By the way, the O-rings were one of those. But 700, uh, there were lots of parts, but 700 of them, if one of them malfunctioned, it was an absolute and total catastrophe. Now listen to me. You are one of the crucial parts in God's family. God cannot achieve the mission through the church that he desires to achieve. He will achieve his big purpose. That's a different discussion. But the mission that he has created for the church, if you don't function well, we can't function effectively. You are critical to the work of God. You see, you're an original part. And that's why we need you. And we don't need you to fail. You're an original part. So collaboration is not a luxury. It's a necessity in the kingdom of God. And that takes me to the last thing that I want you to see this morning. And that is, I want you to understand the unification of the church. Verse 26, look there. We didn't read that, but look there. You've kept your Bible open. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Notice that Paul says that the condition of the body is not determined by the strongest. It's determined by the weakest. That's why we must work together. The heart can't do it all. The brain can't do it all. The back can't do it all. So we either work together to win or we try to operate solo, and if we do, we all suffer. I watched a movie uh, some years ago, Alice and I did, called Coach Carter. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's a story of Ken Carter. He was a successful sporting goods store owner, and in 1999, he became the head basketball coach for his old high school in a poor area of Richmond, California. And what he saw dismayed him. The attitudes of the players were so poor, their performance was dismal on the court. And so he set out to change uh, that, their attitudes and their performance. And he immediately imposed a a strict uh, regime that included respectful behavior, dress code, good grades as a uh, prerequisite for the, the guys to participate on the team. And one player in particular, Timo Cruz, initially refused to accept the new coach's demands, and he quit the team. Only later he comes back and he wants to be reinstated. And he asked Coach Carter, he said, what do I have to do to become a part of the team again? And Coach Carter informs him that he must complete 2,500 push-ups and 1,000 suicide drills. I don't know if you know what suicides are, but those of us who played basketball know what suicides are, and they are not pleasant 
and he's, he has to complete 2,500 push-ups, 1,000 suicide drills by, by the coming Friday, a task that even the coach tells him is impossible. But he began to work on it. Timo began, started out with, but by Friday he had come short of both of those goals. He had not completed 2,500. He had made a dent, but he hadn't completed 1,000 suicide drills. And, and so he, he almost got there. And frankly, he, he failed. And, and even Coach was impressed with the effort that he had given. But, but because he had not completed the goal, Coach Carter asked him, you need to leave the gym. You failed. And suddenly, one of Timo's teammates, Jason, who had previously had a conflict with Timo personality-wise, they just didn't do a job, uh, he said, Coach, I'll do push-ups for him. You said we're a team. One person struggles, we all struggle. One player triumphs, we all triumph. Isn't that right, Coach? And the coach is standing there speechless. As Jason drops to the floor and begins doing push-ups, and one by one by one, the entire team drops down and begins to join to help Timo reach his goal of 2,500 push-ups. It's a beautiful picture of the church. It's a beautiful picture of what the Apostle Paul says right here. If, we, if one member suffers, all of us suffer. If one member is honored, then we all are honored and we all rejoice together. You see, the unification of the church is actually reflected in the way that we respond to suffering, suffering with each other, and the way we respond to each other's success. Our gifts are, are collaborative gifts. They're not competitive gifts. They're given for our good and for the benefit of those who are part of the family of God. Your gifts, Paul even talks about the fact that your gifts are not just yours. They belong to everybody else. Your gifts in this body, you can't say, these are mine. I know what mine are, and I'll use mine. Guess what? The Bible says that your gifts belong to me, and my gifts belong to you. And that's how a healthy spiritual body functions. That's why, that's why we have a month, and we emphasize connect and serve, connect and serve, connect and serve. Find your place. Uh, get involved in serving in the body of Christ. You've been designed for good works. Did you know that? You've been designed for good works. You've been designed to make a difference. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, listen to this, prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. God prepared you before time, right? He created you. He created that window of your life. But guess what else he designed? He designed the way you were to live your life. Now, you have the choice. But he calls you, he says, I've got this plan. I know the plans that I have for you. He told Israel when they were in captivity, he said, now plans to give you a hope and a future. God knows his plans for you. And nobody, no body of Christ, no church is better than the sum of its parts. The fact is God has made us different in order to make us one. God has made us different in order to make us one. That means that the unity of the body of Christ is determined by the unity of all of us, the body parts. That's us. Now, I'm finished with a message. But I want to close by giving you three things that I believe will help you serve God all of your life. And in particular, to serve God in this body called Ridgecrest. 
Three things, write these down. They're not lengthy. Number one, you must accept who you are. you got to accept who you are. Now listen, students, this is important for you going forward. Accept who you are because you're now living in a world that's trying to change who you are. You're living in a world that's trying to tell you be everything but who you are. And if you don't know who you are, trying to tell you, let somebody else determine what or who you are. And adults say, yeah, pastor, the students really need to know that. You do too. Accept who you are. There are a lot of adult believers who are not functioning healthy and effectively in the kingdom of God because they've never accepted who they are. They've never accepted the way God has designed them. You are unique. Stop comparing yourself with others and start rejoicing in the way God has made you. Number two, be who you are. Not just accept who you are, but be who you are. As I said, God has made you an original. There is no one else on the planet like you. Over 7 billion inhabitants of this planet and no two are the same. You are an original. You can't be someone else. You really can't be someone else. But listen to this. You can be the best you there is. You can't be someone else, but you can be the best you there is. So accept who you are. Right? Be who you are. And number three, give of who you are. All body parts have to contribute, right? All body parts are contributing in the, in the process. Uh, they, they have to give of themselves for the body to function right. And so I say to you, give of yourself. Accept yourself, be yourself, and then give of yourself in service to the body of Christ, the church. Find a place to serve. God has gifted you to serve Him. And the gifts that he's given you are all different, and that's on purpose. And so those are gifts that come as a result of knowing him. Variety of gifts, Paul says, but for the purpose of unifying us for the work of God and the glory of God. But there's one gift that all of us need before we can ever serve. There's one gift every one of us in this room need before we can ever serve. It is the gift of eternal life. That gift is made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ, and it is freely offered to everyone. That gift we all need. In fact, don't even begin trying to serve in the kingdom of God if you've not first received the gift of eternal life. You've got to start there. And you can do that today. Dr. Samuel Weinstein was chief of the pediatric cardiothoracic surgery unit for the Children's Hospital, Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx in New York. And in May of 2006, he traveled to El Salvador with an organization called Heart Care International in order to provide uh, life-saving operations to children who would never have them otherwise. And it would take uh, more than just uh, the doctor, Dr. Weinstein's expertise and advanced equipment that they took with them to save the life of a little boy that was eight years old named Francisco Calderon. Dr. Weinstein and his team began operating on Francisco's heart shortly before noon, 
And 12 hours later, they were still working on the little boy when suddenly the procedure took a deadly turn. The surgery had been going well. Everything was working great, but he was bleeding a lot, and they didn't have a lot of the medicines that you and I have access to to stop the bleeding, Dr. Weinstein said. And after a while, they said they couldn't give him blood because they, in fact, had run out of blood, and he had a rare type on top of that. In fact, Francisco's blood type was B negative. B negative is actually present in only 2% of, of the population, the American Red Cross tells us. And it was the only, as it would be, the only other person in the room with blood type of B negative, guess who it was? Dr. Weinstein. And knowing that that he could save this little boy's life potentially by giving his blood. He stepped down from the operating t table, and as his colleagues continued to do their precision work on this little guy's uh, heart, the doctor took off, uh, laid down his scalpel. He took off his gloves. He rolled up his sleeves. He began to uh, scrub and clean himself, very, uh, his forearms where they could uh, with, uh, withdraw the blood. And then in the corner of this unfamiliar operating room sat Dr. Weinstein and they began to draw his blood. He gave his blood. They, they took the blood. They put it into little Francisco Calderon. Dr. Weinstein drank a bottle of water. He ate a Pop-Tart, sat there for about 20 minutes. And then after uh, that, he stepped back up to the operating table uh, and watched his own blood circulate between the boy's small veins Dr. Weinstein that day completed the operation and it saved little Francisco's heart and subsequently saved his life. You know what? Jesus did the very same thing 2,000 years ago. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Jesus was nailed to a cross. It was our, it was our cross. It was a symbol of our death. We were supposed to be nailed there, but he gave his blood so that our hearts could have his life. It was blood given for us. Why? Why would someone do that? I'll tell you why. Because you're valuable. I'll tell you why. Because he created you for his kingdom. I'll tell you why. Because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only, unique son, by the way, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His blood shed for you was to enable you to be a part of the kingdom and the body of Christ. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? No one looking about in this place. I wonder this morning, have you ever received that gift? The gift of life, eternal life in Christ Jesus? You can right now in this place. You can call on him. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're watching by live stream, you can call on him right now. What do I say? What do I say, Pastor? What do I say to him? Oh, from your heart, mean it. And say something like this, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for creating me uniquely. Thank you for dying for me. I know I'm a sinner and I need you. And right now, 
I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me of my sin and be my Savior. And let me then use the gifts that you've given me to honor you. Maybe some of you in this place say, I've done that. But I haven't been serving him. I haven't accepted myself. I haven't been myself. I I haven't given of myself. And today, I'm going to change all that. Lord, right now, I tell you that I thank you for that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I accept that. And God, I'm going to be the best me through the power of your Holy Spirit residing in me to do and fulfill what you put me on this planet to do. Now, Lord, would you hear these prayers that are offered to you in Jesus' name? Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Heads uh, are, are bowed and eyes are closed when, when you stand. Nobody looking about in this place. Did you make one of those decisions? Balcony, ground floor? I'll be here at the front. Our staff are going to be on the aisles. And would you just come to one of us and say, I prayed that prayer to trust Christ as my Savior. Maybe you want to come and pray around this altar. It's so good that it's open. It's open. Come and kneel before Him. Talk to Him. Maybe you just need to say, God, I hadn't been using the gifts, and I'll use them. Whatever it may be, you come. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I need a church home. And I, I've been going to do this, but I'm, I'm going to join Ridgecrest. Would you come? Would you slip out and come? And you'd say, hey, I'm, I'm, I want to make Ridgecrest my church home or family. We're here to receive you. Maybe you need to be baptized. You've never been baptized. And we'll schedule a time for that. Would you come? By live stream, you can text the message to us. We'll tell you about that in just a few moments. But right now, in this moment... As the music and the choir lead us, with heads bowed and eyes closed, there's a decision for you in the balcony, ground floor. You slip out right now. You come on. We're here to receive you. Come on. Right now.